Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. Hear now God's word. Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord abides forever. Let's pray. Father, we pray now that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your word to the glory and honor of your name and to the blessing of your people. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. You can be seated. Now, most of you probably know that for the past several decades, the leading cause of death uh, in the United States annually is cardiovascular disease or heart disease. Uh, categorically, cardiovascular disease includes any disease that affects the heart or the system of arteries and veins that run throughout the body. Now, one common form of heart disease is called arterial sclerosis, in which there's a thickening or hardening of arterial walls. Now, when veins and arteries are healthy, they possess a kind of elasticity or stretchiness to them that allows for the pulsating flow of blood throughout the body. Uh, but when these arterial walls lose this elasticity and they become hardened, the arteries are damaged and the essential flow of blood to organs and tissues is decreased. Now, this is a condition that's treatable through diet modification and exercise and sometimes prescription medication and often sometimes surgical procedures. But if it's ignored, this condition can have very serious health risks, including heart attacks and strokes that can prove fatal and often do prove fatal. Now, while we're probably aware of the risks of cardiovascular disease, of physical heart disease, perhaps it's even more important for us to be alert to the risks of spiritual heart disease. This indeed is what the author of Hebrews is concerned about in chapter 3. Spiritual heart disease, a hardening of the heart in a spiritual, in a spiritual sense. And the reason we know this is because in verses 7 through 15 of Hebrews chapter 3, the author mentions the heart four times. The Greek word for heart is cardia, from which we get the word cardiac. He mentions this four times in verses 7 through 15, and he mentions the word for hardening three times, which in the Greek is sclerotes, which is where we get the word sclerosis. So he's concerned with a hardening of the heart. Because if spiritual disease is ignored, it can be just as serious as physical heart disease, if it's ignored. But the difference is it can be it has eternal consequences, spiritual heart disease. And so like any caring good physician, the author of Hebrews considers with us a divine prescription for spiritual heart disease. So that's what we're going to take a look at. And as he considers this, again, like any good physician, he does so by first issuing a warning and then by identifying a danger and finally by insisting 
on a practice. So those will be our three points this morning. Issuing a warning, identifying a danger, and insisting on a practice. The first thing we're going to look at is issuing a warning. We find that warning right in verse 12, which we began with our reading. Take care, he says, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Now, perhaps the first thing we should notice about this warning is that it's addressed to believers. The warning is for believers. Brothers and sisters are addressed in verse 12. Holy brothers and sisters, you who share in a heavenly calling is how the chapter begins, if you go back to verse 1. So it's clearly written to believers. Now, while we aren't certain who wrote the book of Hebrews, it is widely believed that the book of Hebrews is written to Jews who had converted to Christianity, but who are being tempted for some reason or another. One of these reasons likely includes persecution, but probably is not limited to persecution, but are being tempted for some reason or another to return to the forms of Judaism, to turn back to the Old Testament forms of covenant administration following their conversion to Jesus. And so in light of this, the author is consistently making this appeal throughout the book of Hebrews of the supremacy of Jesus as the mediator of a new and better covenant who fulfills all the shadows and types of Old Testament Judaism in order to dissuade them from turning away from Jesus, in order to dissuade them from turning away from grace and falling away from the salvation that they can find in Jesus alone. And as an example of warning to them, the author of Hebrews refers to the generation who came up out of Egypt, Egypt but failed to enter the land of rest because of their unbelief. Now this group that came up out of Egypt was outwardly part of a covenant community, right? They were all part of the covenant community, but they did not persevere in faith and therefore did not enter into the promise. That's his point. And so this temptation and this warning that we read about here applies equally to us today as it did to the, those that the author of Hebrews was writing as it, and as it did to those coming out of the generation at the Exodus. It applies equally to us because it's possible for us to outwardly be a part of a covenant community but not persevere in faith. You can outwardly be connected to a church and not persevere in faith. Listen to how Jesus in his parable of the sower describes the soil of the ones who fell on rocky soil, the seed who fell on rocky soil. He describes them this way. The ones on the rocky soil, or the rock in Luke 8, 13, are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. Listen to this description. They believe for a while, but in time of testing, they fall away. They believe for a while, but when testing comes, they fall away. I don't think this is implying that Christians, genuine Christians, can lose their salvation. It does imply that people can respond with some semblance of belief without really truly being regenerated at the level of their heart. And tempting or trial exposes the shallowness or the lack of a root in that. Uh, I know Pastor Bob preached on this recently. Rick Phillips clarifies the issue of Christians not being able to lose their salvation and yet the legitimacy of this kind of warning this way. He says, the Bible tells us that all who genuinely trust in Christ can be confident in his complete sufficiency as our Savior. Jesus said of his own, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. 
and no one will snatch them out of my hand. But, he continues, we need to remember that Judas was in his company at that time. And because he lacked faith, the promise was not for him. If we want assurance of our salvation, then our faith must persevere under trial. This warns us against any complacency in our faith. And that's right. Genuine Christians will not lose their salvation, but we must not imagine that we can be saved and not persevere in faith under trial. And our faith is tested. Indeed, those who truly belong to him will be those who heed this genuine warning that we read here in verse 12, to take care or to be watchful. All those who truly belong to Jesus will in the end heed such a warning, but we must hear the warning first and take it seriously in order to heed it. But why is the warning issued in this way? Take care. Or we could also translate it, be watchful. Well, it's because heart disease develops gradually by very small steps. Physically, arterial sclerosis develops gradually over time, usually not always, but usually as a result of unhealthy lifestyle and behavior practices that are adopted. That may not seem all that big of a deal in and of themselves in isolated ways. Lack of activity, poor diet, smoking, inadequate coping measures for stress. But over the course of time, this leads to a damage and destroying of the heart. And the same is true spiritually. Spiritual heart disease, a hardening of the heart spiritually, develops over time gradually by seemingly small steps as a result of adopting ungodly practices in our thinking and in our lives. We see something of this gradual progression actually suggested in our text. We move from an evil heart or a sinful heart, a heart that engages in sinful practices, but then it progresses to an unbelieving heart and then to a falling away of the living God and finally to a heart that's hardened against him. We see this kind of progression in Peter's life, although it happens pretty rapidly for Peter, but we see the same kind of progression, which at first it doesn't seem like it would be any big deal, but in the end it is a big deal. It's potentially destructive. So on the night that Jesus is arrested, we find that Peter is sleeping when he should have been praying. Okay? But no big deal, right? I mean, we've all done that. How big a deal can that be? He's sleeping when he should have been praying. But then following that, after Jesus is arrested, we read in Luke's gospel that Peter is following Jesus at a distance to the courtyard. He follows him at a distance. But you know what? Peter has already been following Jesus at a distance spiritually. That's why he's sleeping instead of praying. Now this just becomes physically manifested. He's, and that's never, that should never sound like a good thing, following Jesus at a distance risk-free, a safe following of Jesus, his no following of Jesus. And then, of course, this eventually leads to Peter warming his hands at the fire of Jesus' enemies in the courtyard before he eventually outright denies that he even knows him three times. There's a progression here. And, of course, this progression is the same thing that we see today. What extramarital affair or what addiction that people develop doesn't begin with a seemingly small step that reflects at the level of the heart a turning away from God towards sin. They all do. 
all hardening of the heart spiritually begins in that kind of a way. And why these things can happen and why we need to heed this warning can be understood by the danger that's identified. So the second thing we see the author of Hebrews doing is identifying a danger. The danger identified by the author that precipitates the warning issued is found at the end of verse 13. And it's the deceitfulness of sin. That's why there has to be a warning, because there's a danger, and the danger is the deceitfulness of sin. We are frequently duped by sin's deceptiveness. Sin is deceptive. Listen to what uh, Cornelius Plantica Jr. writes. From counterfeit money to the trustworthy look on the face of a con artist, evil appears in disguise. Sin will disguise itself. Sin baits us. It baits us by seemingly promising to deliver us the satisfaction and the fulfillment of our longings and our desires. And so we pursue it, we follow it, and we bite down on it only to discover that a hook has woven its way into our heart. And the stuff that we thought was jewelry turns out to be chains, to quote Bill Maloney. But not only is sin deceitful, we also have a problem because our hearts are deceitful. So we have the deceitfulness of our hearts as well. Jeremiah says, he says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Paul speaks of the battle that we have to, to wage against the deceitful desires of our old nature in Ephesians 4.22. So we have the deceitfulness of sin, the deceitfulness of our hearts, the deceitfulness of our desires as all of these dangers, not to mention the deceiver himself. So there is a legitimate danger here. And do you know who is the first one and easiest one and frequently the one who is deceived by my sin, my heart, and my desires? Well, that's obvious, right? It's me. I'm the one who's deceived first and most often. That's true of you too. We we tend to be somewhat good at identifying the flaws and toxic traits of other people. We just aren't very good at identifying them when we have them. We don't define them or see them clearly or accurately. Isn't it interesting that this morning, I can see everybody in this room this morning except one person, 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 me. I can't see myself. I can see you, but I can't see me. And this distorts my self-perception. Paul Tripp says this, my self-perception is as accurate as a carnival mirror. The Bible says that we can be spiritually blind and yet think that we can see quite well. Does that sound dangerous to you? That sounds dangerous to me. That's a little unsettling, right? But it's true. We think that we can see clearly, but we're deceived, like with this. You think that your perception is accurate, but you're deceived, Because you think this says Paris in the spring. And even when I tell you it doesn't say Paris in the spring, you'll read it again and you'll say, it says Paris in the spring. Because you're easily deceived and your perception is not as accurate as you think. How many still think it says Paris in the spring? See, if I don't tell you, you'll go home thinking it says Paris in the spring. Some of you, it says Paris in the, the spring. 
Did you hear that? See, those people are the ones that didn't see it. The truth is that we suffer from spiritual blind spots because of the deceitfulness of sin, the deceitfulness of our hearts, and the deceitfulness of our desires. Again, Peter and the disciples serve as an example of this kind of self-deception. When Jesus informed them in Matthew 26 that they all fall away from him at his arrest, this is what Peter first says. He says, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. He says this hours before he denies him three times. Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. They were blind. They were deceived by sin, by their own hearts, and by their desires. If this is true of them, please don't think that it's not true of you. You are prone to this kind of deception. And so am I. Quoting Cornelius Plantiga again. Listen to what he says. First we deceive ourselves, and then we convince ourselves we are not deceiving ourselves. A moment's reflection reminds us that self-deception has long been a growth industry. Why do alcoholics and other drug abusers typically go through years of denial? Why is the revelation of incest an astonishment to people who are living right in the middle of it? Why do battering husbands offer minimizing and euphemistic accounts of the beatings they administer? And why do battered wives sometimes accept and repeat those accounts? It's because we buy into the lies that we tell ourselves and because we're duped by the deceitfulness of sin. We see it all the time. And this deception is a danger for all of us. The deceitfulness of sin, the deceitfulness of our own hearts, the deceitfulness of our desires, and it will lead to spiritual heart disease. These things will lead to a hardening of the heart spiritually unless it's prevented. And the author of Hebrews shows us how by insisting on a practice. The practice that he insists upon, the prescription for spiritual heart disease that he provides is at the start of verse 13. Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So here's what we could say, contending with the deceitfulness of sin and preventing the hardening of the heart requires mutual accountability. Exhorting one another daily, that's what he's talking about here. You want to avoid hardness of heart, spiritual heart disease? Exhort one another daily, as long as it's called today. It's a relationship of mutual accountability. Listen, not only are we afflicted, by spiritual blind spots when it comes to our sin. We're also exceptionally skilled artists who are capable of carefully editing ourselves and painting the most flattering portrait of ourselves. We are masters of spin when it comes to ourselves. And we can deny that we have any jagged edges to the point where we believe our own lies about ourselves, that there's nothing offensive in us to God and there's nothing sharp or damaging or wounding about us to others. And we need other people. We need other people whose perspective on us is better than our perspective on ourselves is. We need that. And we need it daily from people. C.J. Mahaney writes this, Without others' help to see myself clearly, I'll listen to my own arguments, believe my own lies, and buy my own delusions. He's exactly right. 
That's what I'll do without others' help to see myself clearly. You know, you need the help of others to see that you might be a proud person who's opinionated, tramples over the thoughts and opinions of others, or that you're an inflexible person who insists on getting your own way all the time, or that you're an insensitive person who just comes off as rude, or an oblivious person who's unaware of the needs of people around you, or a self-absorbed person who just never asks what needs are around you, or an undisciplined person who's unreliable and unorganized and often lets people down because of that. Or you need help seeing that you're a self-righteous person who never says you're sorry or who never admits you're wrong. Or a judgmental person who instead of defaulting toward encouragement, you default toward criticism. Or that you're an irritable person who's just hard to be around, not very enjoyable to be around. You need other people to help you see that. Or you need other people to maybe help you see that you're an indulgent person who sleeps too much or eats too much, or drinks too much, or spends too much, or an unforgiving person who holds on to grudges for a really long time, or a self-protective person who refuses to trust other people. We need other people to help us see those things about ourselves because we likely won't see those things in ourselves because we don't want to see them. We're self-deceptive, we're self-deceived. And if we acknowledge that we need help, We won't only accept exhortation from other people in our lives. If we agree that we need it, we'll actually invite it. We'll invite this kind of exhortation from others, which we rarely do. I think uh, Dan Allender says something accurate but stinging when he observes this. Very few people actually believe that we need only the final few touches applied, yet... We are greatly offended if anyone points out just how far from, we, how far from maturity we are. I know I botched that. Just how far we are from maturity. We acknowledge being sinners, but we are defensive when our sin is seen and mentioned publicly. It is natural for my self-protective heart to silence feedback by offering either excuses or context to mitigate my failure. There are extenuating circumstances We were having a bad day, or we were under too much pressure and stress. I don't know about you, but that's exactly right for me. And you know what? We need to stop that. We need to stop being willing to admit that we're sinful and being defensive and off-put when people agree with us and point out things and admit things about us that we, that we refuse to admit about ourselves because we'll only admit that we're sinful in general. We, need, we all need to stop that. And we need, we need to invite others to speak truth into our lives because we need that. Are you doing that? Are you willing to do that? Think of these questions that Mahaney raises. Do you confess your sin to others? Do you confess specific instances of sin and not just sin in general? Does someone in your life know the areas of temptation in your life at the present time? Do they know the most pronounced patterns of sin in your life? And do others find you open to teaching and correction? If the answer is no to all these questions or even no to most of these questions, maybe I need to read the warning again. Take care 
lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. It is not just recovering addicts who need relationships of spiritual and moral accountability. It's true, recovering addicts need that. But everyone who's a sinner needs relationships of spiritual and moral accountability. And if we don't have them, we, we run the risk of having the concrete of sin set in our hearts, and in our lives, and in our character. Again, grace can trump that, but we should not be presumptive. If we don't have pe people speaking in our lives, if we're not open and receptive to that, if we're not teachable and correctable, the concrete of sin and those patterns will set in our heart and in our life. And so go to others. Invite their gaze into your life. Invite them to speak into your life. Now, obviously, go to people who know you well. Go to people who love you well. Go to people who love Jesus. Those are the people you want to go to. That doesn't mean you can't learn things about yourself from people who are your enemies and who are th saying things to hurt you. A humble heart will receive that too. But the people you want to go to are people who know you and who love you and who know and love Jesus too. And you can do that, though, and invite their gaze because of what we said last week, that no one can find out anything about you that God doesn't already know. And you already stand in his love and grace and forgiveness. You don't have to hide that stuff from other people. You can invite their gaze. But note well the practice that the author is insisting on, exhort one another. This word for exhort is parakaleo. Parakaleo, which means to encourage or to comfort, or even sometimes to cheer up. So what we're being called to here is a ministry of encouragement, a ministry of lifting up, a, men, a ministry of helping, comforting, supporting. It's not a ministry of condemning, of shame, of tearing down. That's not what we're being called to do. We're being called to exhort, lift up, encourage, spur on, that's the ministry that we're being called to. In fact, this word parakaleo is related to the word that Jesus uses to describe the Holy Spirit in John's gospel. The parakletos, the paraclete, which is translated in English versions as the helper or the comforter or the counselor. So the practice that's being insisted upon is a ministry of the Holy Spirit. We are to be used as instruments of the hand of, in the hands of the Holy Spirit to carry on his ministry of encouraging, of comforting, of helping, of counseling. And of course, the best way that we do this is to speak the scriptures into the lives of others, to engage in a ministry of the word that was inspired by the Holy Spirit. That's how we share in that ministry to speak the word. And isn't it interesting that the author of Hebrews is modeling this precise approach to us here? Because what's he, what's he doing but referring to events in the Old Testament and quoting Psalm 95 in an effort to encourage his readers to stay confident, to stay soft-hearted, and to endure and to persevere in the faith as they look to Jesus. That's what he's encouraging them to do. We have the example right here before us. And isn't that what we need? Isn't this the kind of encouragement we need in our trials 
And in our pilgrimage through the wilderness, this wilderness life that we're living, isn't what we need in our spiritual battles and isn't it what others need us to give to them? We don't need platitudes or cliches. We need the truth and the promises of God's word. We need to share that with others and we need to receive that from others. This is the divine prescription for spiritual heart disease. So, we can all stop pretending. We're all a mess to various degrees. I'm a mess. You're a mess. I'm deceived. You're deceived. You need my help. I need your help. Okay? Can we just all be honest about that? We need help. We need each other's help. In our struggle against sin, to grow in godliness, we need help. But we need to remember this as well. We need to remember that there's grace. We need to remind each other of that daily. Because not only are we afflicted by spiritual blind spots when it comes to our sin, we also can easily lose sight of the grace of our Savior. And that's why the greatest encouragement that we receive here is in verse 14. Listen to where he leads us. We share in Christ. He writes to his readers, and the Spirit says to us, we share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Listen, we're not promised an easy life devoid of suffering and hardship and trial and even persecution. We're not promised that. In fact, quite the contrary in Scripture. Here's what we are promised. We share in Jesus. So stay the course. We share in Jesus. We stand before the Father accepted and embraced in the righteousness of Jesus. We share in his righteousness. We've been adopted into God's family in Christ. We share in Jesus. The Israelites received manna and water from the rock. We share in Jesus, the true bread from heaven and the water of life. The mediator of a new and better covenant. The true lamb of God whose blood cleanses us from every defilement and every sin. The true and greater high priest who ever lives and intercedes for us. We share in Jesus. And because of that, we have the hope of resurrection life and eternal glory, even when we're enduring trial. So let's exhort one another with that. To carry on, stay the course, even in hardship. We share in Jesus. Let's exhort one another daily with those truths as we hold our confidence firm to the end. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this warning that we receive here. We confess that we often care for our hearts physically while neglecting them spiritually. Father, we admit that we are easily deceived. Uh, we easily deceive ourselves and we don't even know it. So help us to invite others to speak truth into our lives, to speak your truth into our lives, Holy Spirit, not just about our sin, but to speak the truth about your grace as well so that we may be encouraged and lifted up and that we may encourage and lift up others in this way by fixing our eyes on you. Thank you that we share in Jesus our treasure. Keep our eyes on him, our hearts, tender, godly, and dependent on your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.